Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 369th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you by ICD University. I'm Dennis Jones, sitting in for Chuck Buck, and joining me this morning as co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Dennis, and hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about the need for physicians to have serious conversations with patients about advanced care planning. And that means discussions of a serious illness and the next steps, advanced directives, hospice, skilled nursing facilities. That's right, Dennis. And when it comes to advanced care planning, now is always a good time to plan. Reporting our lead story this morning will be auditor, educator, and consultant, Terry Fletcher. Also on today's broadcast will be Glorianne Bryant. Glorianne will be reporting on updates to the first quarter coding clinic. And Lori Johnson has the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. And Erica, you have a Talk Back segment, and it's one of the most popular segments here on Talk 10 Tuesday. We have much to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by ICD University, inviting you to subscribe to the 2019 ICD-10 Educational Webcast Series. Just click on the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast. Now, here's Tim Powell at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks. I'm so used to saying thank you, Chuck, but thank you. (laughs) And in the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the good version with Gene Wilder, one of the characters is behaving badly when the Oompa Loompas begin singing, who is to blame if your kid is a brat? And then rhetorically, they answer mommy and daddy. Revenue cycle is the same way. Recently, in the state of Washington, healthcare company filed for bankruptcy claiming that the revenue cycle company they had hired had driven them there by its poor performance. Staying out of the fray, I'm not going to mention the chain or the revenue cycle company. The chain claims that poor performance by the revenue cycle company led to the bankruptcy. I think there may have been other issues, including most immediately the number of days cash on hand that may be more to blame. Whether providers, whether providers outsource or not, They can't evaluate the performance of a revenue cycle consultant unless they have key performance indicators. I strongly recommend that you not rely on the same company doing revenue cycle consulting to provide managed cycle data. Figures don't lie, but liars figure, as the old saying goes. Most TPAs have reliable, extensive reporting that can help you. Here are some key performance indicators that you need to have as a provider. First is your clean claim rate. Your clean claim rate is the number of claims being submitted and processed without additional intervention divided by the total number of claims submitted. Claims not considered clean may, be, may not be denied, but require manual intervention, such as coding corrections, in order to be submitted. Best practice here is 95%. Your denials rate. The denials rate is a percentage of claims returned unpaid. These are claims submitted to payers that are returned for claim issues, including coding errors and the lack of required authorizations. Next is discharge not final build. This is the number of claims that you have not submitted to a payer for a variety of reasons. You may have a backlog in coding. There may be a coding issue. There may be some specific regulatory issue causing you to hold claims. And next is your paid on first denial rate. This is the ratio of claims 
that have originally been denied that you've successfully appealed. And here again, best practice is 90, is 95%. And finally, as in the current case, is days cash on hand. The days cash on hand is the amount of, of uh, cash you have in total divided by the cash that you spend per day. And this is the amount of, of time that you can spend and pay your bills from the cash that you have in the bank in case that something horrific happens. Whether you outsource or insource, make sure that you have a good source of revenue cycle data. Remember, you are responsible for your revenue cycle. If you think it is all too expensive, let me assure you that the alternative could bankrupt you. And with that, back to you. Okay. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday, May 14th, 2019, and you're listening to the 369th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. The Office of the Inspector General and Department of Justice have targeted additional inpatient diagnoses, resulting in substantial penalties for hospitals and health systems. While there are issues with ICD-10-CM code assignments, inpatient coders are often hampered by insufficient provider documentation, non-compliant queries, and a lack of knowledge about coding conventions or the latest official coding guidance. In an upcoming ICD-10 Monitor webcast, Dr. James Kennedy, physician, certified coder, and clinical documentation integrity specialist, will lead you through the fundamentals of ICD-10-CM code assignments, coding clinic advice, and other authoritative references that can help you upgrade your action plan for coding additional inpatient diagnoses. To register, use the upcoming webcast tab in today's program and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Thanks, Clark. And remember, you can save 30 bucks when you register to attend Dr. Kennedy's webcast by entering the coupon code Tuesday. Now's the time for Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Senior Healthcare Consultant, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Dennis, and good morning, Erica. For the past few weeks, I have been commenting on IPPS proposed rule fiscal year 20. I have covered a general overview and proposed new diagnosis and procedure codes. Today, I want to cover some of the MSDRG shifts. There are 12 MSDRG changes that have been proposed there are 13 additional MSDRG shifts from MSDRGs 981, 983, and 987 and 989 to other DRGs in the classification. These MSDRGs represent cases where the diagnosis, principal diagnosis, and the principal procedure are not related. The very first positive shift is peripheral ECMO will move from MSDRGs 207, 291, 296, or 870 to MSDRG 003. That re represents a relative weight change from as low as 1.3454 to 18.8862. There is also a lot of shifting around in MSDRGs 034, 035, 036, which are the carotid stent procedures, to MSDRGs 037, 038, and 039, which are the extracranial procedures. When analyzing this data, CMS found 46 procedure codes which were performed on carotid arteries without stents 
or done on other vessels but classified to the carotid artery stent, MSDRGs. They also find 96 procedure codes, which were deletion of the carotid artery with stent um, in the extracranial procedure, MSDRGs. The third finding was six procedure codes for deletion of the carotid artery with stent were missing, so they are now assigned to the carotid artery stent, MSDRG. The overall change in relative weight when moving from 034035036 is slightly less than the MSDRGs 037038 and 039. Another very positive shift is the reassignment of secondary diagnosis I26.01, I26.02, I26.09, which represent acute core pulmonale from MSDRGs I'm sorry, MSDRG 176 to MSDRG 175. That is a shift from 0.8990 to 1.4455. Please note that MSDRG 175 title will now include or with acute core pulmonale. It is important to educate the coders and the documentation specialists on the documentation of acute core pulmonale when it's appropriate. The MSDRG 691 and 692, which was urinary stones with ESWL, are proposed to be deleted. These cases will move from MSDRG, I'm sorry, these cases will move to MSDRGs 693 and 694, which is for urinary stones. Two new MSDRGs will be created. MSDRG 319 and 320 will capture other endovascular cardiac valve procedures with or without MCC. The goal is to capture endovascular non-supplement procedures on cardiac valves. For the movement from 981 to 983, the gastrointestinal stromal tumor with stomach and or small intestine excision is proposed to shift from MSDRGs 326, 327, and 328, which is stomach, esophageal, and duodenal procedure. There was an article on www.icd10monitor.com, and we have a webcast planned for June 4, 2019, for a deeper dive into the proposed rule for inpatient prospective payment fiscal year 20. Your comments regarding this proposed rule are due by June 24th. Your comments must reference CMS 1716-P. These comments can be uploaded to www.regulations.gov or mailed to CMS. The information that you need to send comments to CMS can be found at the top of your screen at a tab that's marked Info from Laurie Johnson. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Dennis? Thanks, Erica, and thank you, Lori. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Glory Ann Bryant is here with an update on the first quarter coding clinic. Thank you, Dennis. One of the most respected coding resources is the AHA Coding Clinic for ICD-10 CMPCS. 
coding professionals and CDI professionals alike look forward to this publication for guidance. In the first quarter of 2019, which was released back towards the beginning of April-ish, we find a variety of topics for both diagnosis, coding, and inpatient procedures, or the PCS. Now, there are two featured topics within this Q1 publication this time, the first one being HIV and related conditions, and the second being Whipple procedures for surgeries. Let's start a little bit with the HIV or the Human Immunodeficiency Virus Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, AIDS. Here we find a little unsure situations for coding professionals in that the related conditions to HIV, AIDS, how do we determine that? And does the classification provide all the details and information that we need? As we know, provider documentation is critical for accurate coding, but still there can be some confusion, and there may be situations where the clinical documentation just does not provide a linkage to the HIV and the other condition. Thus, we will need to query the provider for clarification. And speaking of querying, be sure to follow the AHIMA ACTUS 2019 practice brief on that subject. Now, back to the HIV coding. In a situation when a patient has a history of HIV, so HIV is the history, and also has pneumonia, we cannot assign the B20, but rather the Z21 asymptomatic humano, human immunodeficiency virus status. So the question around history of HIV, we're looking for the Z21 code. And again, you may need to query the provider for clarification regarding that HIV status and whether the pneumonia is related to the HIV. We can't assume. Under ICD-10-CM, the B20, it's just a three-character code, is the HIV disease code. And provider documentation must state the patient has AIDS or HIV in order to assign the B20 code. We cannot automatically link B20 to different conditions. Even though there are clinical illness lists published, you can, you can get those on the internet. One of those is the CDC AIDS-related illness list. We can't in our classification system, unless it links it there, assume they're linked. And we can't use those lists to automatically link. Now, remember about the Z21 code. That's the asymptomatic him immunodeficiency virus status. On the Whipple procedure side for surgeries, they go into a lot of great detail about the goals of these procedures, usually when a patient has pancreatic cancer and the removal of the head of the pancreas, but other organs may also be resected and what we need to do to do that. Um, often, uh, of course, these are open laparoscopic, but they can be with or without robotic assistance also on those procedures. The next area I wanted to mention briefly is regarding a six sinus syndrome diagnosis. And that acronym abbreviation we use quite often is SSS, and it's the I49.5 code. 
And the patients will often have to have surgery or placement of a procedure for the pacemaker insertion device. And there was confusion around, do we still continue to code the I-49.5 code, the six sinus syndrome code, with the presence of the device pacemaker code, the Z95. And the instruction was, yes, that we would still code the SSS, which was a little different instruction than we've had had in the past. So that's, <clears throat> excuse me, an important topic to review. I don't have time today to go through the whole scenario of, of the Z95 and the I-49.5. But I suggest you read the full content of the publication, that's a must. And remember that we do have an article and we did a webinar also covering this Q1 2019 guidance. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Gloreen. Totally agree that you can't assume the uh, linkage, but those lists can certainly be clinical indicators to clue you in when you should query for the linkage. So thank you. That was past president of the California Health Information Association, Gloreen Bryan. Dennis? Thanks, Erica, and thank you, Glorianne. Remember, you can read Glorianne's reporting on this subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. This morning, our lead story is about the need for physicians to have serious conversations with patients about advanced care planning. And that means discussions of a serious illness and the next steps, advanced directives, hospice, skilled nursing facilities. And when it comes to advanced care planning, now is always a good time to plan. Reporting our lead story this morning is auditor, educator, and consultant, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Dennis, and good morning, everyone. Now is definitely the time to start having the conversations with your physicians and mid-level providers. Now that payers are recognizing that advanced care planning is not only an important discussion to have with your patients, but important enough to offer solid reimbursement to the physicians as of January 1st, 2016, Medicare also allows for payment on this. I was recently shadowing a physician to make sure he was capturing his daily charges appropriately, and a husband and wife came into their appointment together. One had end-stage renal disease and the other had COPD and CHF. As the physician was speaking to them and the conversation did turn to the end-of-life decisions, it was interesting to me that even the husband and wife were not on the same page. One wanted no measures taken should the end become apparent, and the other wanted every measure taken to prolong life. They even argued about it with the wife saying, well, I better put my papers on our refrigerator under my, social, under my uh, special Queen of Hearts magnet so when the ambulance comes to get me, they listen to me and not you. They were very cute, but, and they'd been married over 50 years and both in their late 80s. But the physician and I both seemed as stunned uh, together as, I, as the conversation, and they were bantering back and forth, was clearly not in agreement for their own care. I started my clock as the conversation continued because now we are talking with the patient and this is now helping them plan for their future medical needs. And now you're looking at advanced care planning. At the end of their life, as the end of their life is nearing, the best way to make sure their wishes will be respected is to have these conversations. But talking about this is not always easy. Now physicians and mid-level providers, once you start talking, don't feel that you need to get everything done at once. Rather view it as a process. Even after the patient has made their wishes known, these wishes may change over time. Once you started the conversation, however, it will be easier to talk about changes or related issues in the future, keeping in mind also that other family members may want to be part of this conversation, and you will need to have policies in place to continue to make sure the patient is HIPAA protected 
and is giving their permission or consent to have others involved in these discussions. There's also a great website out there called vitaltalk.org, and they have training tools and scripts to assist providers in their communication skills for serious illness conversations with patients. So one of the criteria for billing these services is that the patient has to consent for you charging for it, and you may get the response, hey, I'm feeling fine, so we don't need to talk about it now. Can we wait to handle things as they come up? That's why it's important to first have some training on how to approach the subject and how to speak to patients about this. They do not always want to initiate the discussion. Now, while some patients have living wills, advanced directives, they, those are created in the context of, hospital, of a hospital admission or during estate planning, and others may never have considered what they want at the end of their life. So many healthcare dollars currently are spent dur during the end of the patient's lives, at least in part because many patients have not thought about or discussed how they would like to be treated or not treated during the final stages. So what is advanced care planning? Advanced care planning is the process that helps the patient decide and document what kind of care they would want, what kind of care they would not want if a health crisis arises or they're not able to communicate and make decisions or a patient's health is declining and the end is anticipated in a few months to a year, maybe even two years. And this is an important conversation for anyone who is 18 or older. Billing for ACP, advanced care planning, becomes that became effective in January 2016 is interesting because it is a time-based code as well. The work RVU for 99497, which is the first 30 minutes, is 2.40 with an estimated payment of about $86. The work value for the 99498 is 2.09, that's an additional 30 minutes, and that estimated is about $75, and that's adjusted based on geography. Not only are these time-based codes, but there's no formal national coverage determination policy with CMS as well, and providers will be responsible to, have a create, to create their own written policy in their practice on how this service should be handled, who can provide and bill for it, and to be consistent throughout your practice with your policy. Remember, patients will have a share of cost, so it's important that they buy into this discussion as far as a billable service. Advanced care planning may be provided by any specialist, including the primary care physician, cardiologist, oncologist, or any other specialist. Are there forms to fill out for the patient, such as living will, advanced directives, or medical power of attorneys? There may be. You'll have to read my article on this, and we give you direction on the topic next week, and it'll give you not only directions on how to implement, but the billing and coding confirmation and the compliance rules that you need to be aware of, be aware of as you consider adding the service to your practice for your patients. A recommendation is to introduce the service to established patients that are declining in health and the physician believes and maybe in the next 24 months the patient may not be able to participate in these discussions personally. For these patients, advanced care planning would not only be the responsible thing to do, but best practices tells me it can contribute to your overall patient satisfaction surveys as well because you are adding values added services to your patient population that may, they may not have considered necessary but you're probably already more than likely having these discussions with your patients. It's now a time that you actually get paid for it. To be compliant, do it right, and capture your due revenue. Dr. Reamer, back to you. Terry, that was really terrific. Thank you very much. That was auditor, educator, and consultant Terry Fletcher. Dennis? Thanks, Erica, and thank you, Terry. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday, and that's Talk Back featuring our Dr. Erica Reamer. Erica. I'm busy doing a project reviewing ED documentation from different sites with different EHRs and different templates. I wanted to share some of my observations and opinions with you. 
My comments stem from a review of the printed out record, which might look quite different if I were actually in the electronic system. I am biased. I trained in the paper world and I am accustomed to, and I like, information in a specific order. It is challenging to satisfy old timers and millennials who may have very different preferences. An example is locating the impressions at the beginning. I like a nice, orderly exposition of the facts as reported by the patient and the family, the physical exam as it was performed, and the explanation of what the findings and the data and the provider. The diagnoses are the conclusion. I think they should con conclude the note. I fear that putting them up front might entice readers to neglect reading the details which led to the conclusions. Who reads the last chapter of a book first? I like the way it looks when sections are easily identifiable. White space to set apart sections is okay with me. Double spacing everything is just distracting. Some facilities essentially had two columns. The left contained the HPI, review of systems, physical exam, medical decision-making, assessment and plan. And the right side had the past medical history, meds, allergies, social history, and orders. When in narrative form with good headers, it made for an easy read. I liked the way my eye could scan down the left side and find the information I sought quickly and easily. And if I needed more details, I could always pop over to the right side and find those as well. I prefer a paragraph that tells a story. To help providers meet the requirements of the historical elements, some organizations have them templated in, for example, quality, severity, timing, etc. I didn't mind if there was a decent narrative and then those scripted elements were included at the end to add detail. It did offend my sensibilities for the history to consist entirely of a laundry list of element fields without any association. I hate note bloat of entire radiology reports and irrelevant lab results. I do want to see pertinent positives and negatives. There should be compromise of convenience for the provider to document and ease of reading for the consumer. Templated normals should be useful, edited, or deleted. An exam pertaining to every chief complaint or impression should be present. You shouldn't have chest wall pain as a diagnosis if there's no chest wall examination. Caveats and attestations should be enterprise-wide and have compliance's blessing. You can't negate inaccuracies with a disclaimer that, it's my voice recognition's fault, and contact me to discuss if you have a question, and then there's no contact information for you. I'm going to make a plug for robust MDM, which is medical decision-making, which may very soon be the factor determining level of service. MDM explains why you did what you did and supports your disposition. Best practice includes comorbid conditions in the impressions, specificity for ICD-10-CM, and useful informative supervisory notes. Why were you value added? It's easy to recognize, remediate bad, or commend excellent documentation. At very least, your institutions need to do what they can to facilitate the process by making good templates 
and formats. I'll be uploading an article on this soon on ICD-10 Monitor. And that's it for me, Dennis. Back to you. Thanks, Erica. We, we look forward to reading that article. That's great. Um, that's going to be a wrap for the 369th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Erica and I want to thank our panelists today, Gloria Ann Bryant, Lori Johnson, Timothy Powell, Terry Fletcher, and of course... Dr. Erica Reamer. Be with us next Tuesday when Chuck Buck returns. There will be a very important story on coding accuracy. The report card is out and it's not good. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. I'm Dennis Jones reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD 10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.